Every parent will tell you that when your kids have been playing and suddenly things go quiet, a little alarm bell goes off in your brain. Sometimes your kids are just playing quietly. Sometimes. Most times they are getting into some new and creative kind of trouble. One of the uh, more notorious examples of this in my household was sometime in this past year when Eric and I thought the girls were just keeping one another company in the bathroom. That was our first mistake. And we walked in to find that they had teamed up and together had shredded an entire roll of toilet paper into little pieces and put all of those little pieces into the full tub of bath water that was sitting right there. Toilet paper dissolves really quickly, let me tell you. Uh, this is just one little example of how unity in and of itself is not always a good thing. <laughs> My girls worked really well together, but they were united around the wrong goal. Last week in Philippians 2, we heard Paul urging the church in Philippi and us to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the good news by relating to one another in unity. We heard Paul tell us unity is possible and it will bring us joy. Pursue it by working it out and watching your words. Take a posture of humility with one another rather than jostling for position. It'll be worth it. That's not the end of what Paul wants the church to hear. Because when we say, be united, it begs the question, united around what? We could be united around our love for the Cubs. Or we could, if I know at least a couple people in here are White Sox fans. We could be united in an earnest attempt to get everyone to share our belief that the moon is made of green cheese. Every totalitarian regime has sought to enforce a sort of unity, usually through violent means. And the regimes that got the most unity, the most buy-in, were the ones that did the most damage. So, unity is not automatically a moral good. As we seek to live out, to live as good kingdom citizens, we are to live in unity together in how we relate with one another. We're to be good teammates. But even more crucially, we're to live in unity in what we are pursuing together. We are to be united in our single-minded determination to know Christ. Knowing Christ is our goal here. That is how we learn to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the good news. Knowing Christ is what enables us to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, in common union, communion together. Because knowing Christ changes everything. How? Let's look today at Philippians 3. Three transformations that result from knowing Christ together. First, knowing Christ transforms our perspective. Paul uses the word consider a few different times in this letter. In Philippians 2, he says, in humility, consider others as greater than yourselves. Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. 
In today's passage, he writes, whatever regains to me, I now consider loss. I consider everything a loss compared to Jesus. I consider them garbage. I do not consider myself to have yet taken hold of it. So what's up with that word, consider? It's a word related to perspective. You have the data, and then you have an interpretation of the data. Consider it's an evaluative word, a uh, word about conclusion. Think for a moment, imagine that I'm holding a banana. We can objectively look together at the color of that banana and probably agree on that, right? It's green, it's yellow, it's yellow with brown spots. We can agree on that. But is it the perfect banana to eat? That depends on your taste. If it's yellow with brown spots, I do not want to eat that banana. I give it to Eric. What color do we consider to be the perfect banana? Paul urges the Philippians to have a Christ-transformed perspective, to consider themselves, others, and the world in general with Christ's perspective, with the mind of Christ. That is why Paul gives us that beautiful hymn in Philippians 2 that we read last week, the story of Christ's humbling himself, becoming like us, obedient to death, enduring suffering, exalted by God in the resurrection and ascension, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. As we consider that story, we're to seek to fashion our lives accordingly, and that will dramatically change our perspective. It certainly changed Paul's. Verses four to six at the beginning of our passage, they're autobiographical. Remember Paul's story. He was a devout Pharisee. He was zealous for the law of God, so much so that he persecuted unto death some of the earliest followers of Jesus. Remember this scene where Stephen is stoned to death and Saul, Paul, the apostle now, was standing there with the coats laid at his feet, approving the whole thing. Then on the road to Damascus, he is stopped in his tracks and knowing Christ, meeting Christ for Paul changed everything. The things he thought were spiritual pluses turned out to be the exact opposite because they had nothing to do with knowing Christ. When we know Christ and we come to see his perspective on the world, which is really what the Gospels and a lot of the New Testament is about, we come to see that a lot of things that we think really matter don't matter much at all. From Christ's perspective, my MDiv degree does not matter all that much. <laughs> I heard the Ted's professor laughing at that. From Christ's perspective, the markers of status, we all, we all tune into whether or not we realize it, how much money we make, our lifestyle, size of our house, education level, nationality, gender, skin color, you name it. None of that earns you anything in the kingdom of God. And if those things keep you from following Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then they become worse than nothing. Think about Jesus' interactions with the rich young ruler. All that wealth, it was a barrier to Jesus. In one of his parables, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like someone digging in a field who stumbles across a priceless buried treasure. The guy covers it back up. He goes away. He sells everything that he has, his clothes, his perfume, his cattle, everything he has to buy that field and own that treasure. Now, my kids hate that story. I don't want to give up my things. And I get that. But the point of the story is that the treasure is worth it. 
Go all in on that treasure. Go all in on the kingdom. Go all in on Jesus. Because Christ is everything. Compared to him, everything else is scat. Knowing Christ transforms our perspective. Second, knowing Christ transforms us from the inside out. The opening verses to chapter three, the lectionary leaves out. It's a mini diatribe. Paul does that sometimes. A mini diatribe against, not against Jews. It's very important, especially given what we're witnessing in the news today. This is not against Jews in general. It's against those who were trying to insist that the Gentiles had to become Jews in order to live righteous covenant lives as Christians. This was a big debate in the early church, as you know. And Paul says, no, Judaizers, guys, I have been there. You want to talk law righteousness? I can talk law righteousness. Because from the perspective of the righteousness uh, found in the Jewish law, Paul had been perfect. Not meaning sinless, but meaning pretty darned flawlessly devout. He wasn't circumcised later as a convert. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was born into the chosen people, the most special tribe, reading, speaking, writing the special language of the scriptures. And not just that, he was a Pharisee, one of the folks who took the law and then spelled out all the details, precisely what it meant to live that law in everyday life. And they followed it to the T, blameless, according to that standard of righteous covenant living. So what's the problem here? Because Psalm 19 reminds us that the law of the Lord is good. It's perfect. It's sure and just and clean and true. It is more to be desired than gold, sweeter far than honey. And Jesus too loved and followed the law. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others that to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The law itself is not the problem. The problem is that God never intended the law to be the last word, to be ultimate. When Paul met Jesus face to face on that road to Damascus, he realized that in his zeal for the law, he had missed the one for whom the entire law and the prophets had been waiting, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He'd missed the point. And Paul's perspective on the law changed. He saw the law had been a good tutor, teaching God's people how to live righteous lives until the arrival of Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the whole law. And it's Jesus now who shows us and makes us able to live righteous lives, lives worthy of the good news. The law is sort of like a scaffolding while a building is being built. But Jesus is the building in which we now dwell. The law is good, but it has no power to transform us from the inside out. The law cannot help us know God the way Jesus can, 
the way God promised in Jeremiah 31. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Paul knows that the by faith righteousness is greater than the by law righteousness because it is a from within righteousness. Knowing Christ doesn't just teach us how to behave in a holy manner, it transforms us to be holy, to be righteous, to be a saved person living a saved life. Dallas Willard puts it this way, to know Christ in the kingdom of God, we must abandon ourselves to a total transformation of who we are on the inside, to taking on the character of Christ through living with him day by day and hour by hour. Now let's pause for a moment and ask, what does knowing Christ mean anyway? What does it mean to say, I know Ethan or I know Otto? Think about when someone asks you, oh, you went to this college? Well, do you know this person who went there about the same time? And you might say, I've met them, but I wouldn't say I know them. Given uh, all the social media stuff, it can be easy to think that we know people when we really know about them. So I know some of you in here are Taylor Swift fans. Some of you have probably heard of Taylor Swift. Some of you probably know all about her boyfriends. Read her interviews, listen to her songs, watch the documentary. You might know a lot about Taylor Swift. You might feel like you know her, but you don't know Taylor Swift in real life. I think sometimes we treat Jesus like a celebrity that we know from a distance. We know a lot about him. We read about him, talk about him. But Dallas Willard writes, to know Christ is to live interactively with him right where you are in your daily activities. That is the spiritual life in Christ. He is your contemporary. And he's now about his business of moving humanity along toward its destiny in this universe. You don't want to miss out on being a part your part of that great project. You want to be sure to take your life into his life and in that way to find your life to be eternal as God intended it. Jesus is not just some celebrity we keep tabs on or someone who lived a long time ago. He is alive now. He's not retired. He is accessible to you now. And in this, the kingdom of God has drawn near. We can actually interact with Jesus as a living person here and now through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Jesus doesn't just want you to know about him. He wants you to know him as he already knows and loves you. So knowing Christ really and truly is the thing that writes God's law in our minds and hearts and that transforms us into real, lived-out righteousness, and therefore real, lived-out unity. Knowing Christ changes everything because it changes us from the inside out. And third, knowing Christ transforms how we direct our energies. 
these famous words, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What is the goal of the Christian life? What is the one thing that we are to pursue with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Mismatched goals always result in disunity. Imagine you're doing a three-legged race, right? One of those where you have a leg tied to the person next to you. <laughs> if I'm, Allie's leading worship today, so I'm gonna pick on her. If Allie and I have legs tied together and Allie's heading this way and I'm heading that way, we can work as hard as we want. We're not getting anywhere except to fall on our faces. Paul says, my one and only goal, the one to which I pour in all of my energies, is to know Christ. Not just know about him, but to live my life in complete and total devotion and submission to Jesus Christ. My goal is not just to end up in heaven, but to live my life in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus, moment by moment, to be faithful to Christ and the tasks he's given me to do, to persevere with Christ through every trial, through prison, through sufferings, through humiliation, even to death, to run my very hardest until I cross the finish line. And that is to be our one thing together as well. The goal towards which we individually and we as a group direct our energies. If you or I achieve all of our career goals and have an amazing lifestyle and don't know Christ in it, all of those achievements are garbage. If Redeemer somehow grows to be a thousand people, I don't know where we would fit, but if we do that and we feed the hungry and yet we fail to know Jesus here, what's the point? If we are perfect Anglicans, or we get it all right on all the social issues, but we don't know Jesus, it profits us nothing. Paul says, put your all into one thing, that priceless treasure in the field, put it all into knowing Christ, on Christ's terms, through his spirit dwelling in you. Is Christ our one thing here? Is he our priceless treasure for which we'll do anything? Do we want that treasure so much we are willing to undergo the transformation that comes through knowing Christ? Because it is glorious and it is also scary. Knowing Christ will transform our ways of thinking about things, hard things, like race and gender and sexuality and politics. Knowing Christ will transform our loyalties and our relationships. Knowing Christ means giving up my right to pursue my own interests apart from the interests of others. Lynn Kohick writes that the perfection called for by Christ and Paul is a complete restructuring of what we often think it means to be Christian and what it means to be fully human and a fulfilled human. Paul presents a vision of humanity as obedient to another, Christ, and ready to be molded in ways that might feel unauthentic or non-fulfilling. These are hard words. All the things we considered to our prophet are really willing to consider them rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, our Lord.
I just realized this is my last uh, sermon, someone else is preaching next week, before I will be installed officially as your rector. What do I bring to that role? What qualifies me? What will make me a good rector? What will be to my profit as a rector? Well, only one thing. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Choosing day after day to live in single-minded devotion to him. To seek his transforming power in my own life. And to call you to that life with me. That's what we're doing here. Christ changes everything. True unity, the unity that is worthy of the gospel, is unity that comes through single-minded determination to know Christ together on his terms. Not my terms, not yours, not Highwood's, not ours together. Christ and Christ alone. May we know Jesus here more and more. May we know the power of his resurrection. May we know his presence and participation in his sufferings. May we become like him in his death and so somehow arriving together at that finish line with all the saints in glory. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen.